Good morning again. We're doing a, a, a short little series, two Sundays were, of uh, faith and works. Um, some were thinking that because the text was uh, somewhere other than Matthew that maybe there was a guest speaker today. Uh, but no, it, it's me. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're going to look at uh, this aspect of faith and works and uh, and we're going to tie it in with what uh, Ma- uh, Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 25. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verse 20 to uh, verse 24. James chapter 2, verse uh, 20 through 24. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Verse 20 says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which uh, says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at this text that your spirit would uh, illumine our minds and that we could understand. Father, we know that it is your will that each of us become more like Christ, that our reactions, that our thought process, Our desires will be as Christ desires, which are to glorify you, Father. I pray that your Spirit would use your word to change us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. From the time of the uh, apostles of the church to about the church fathers, uh, there was a lot of persecution that was going on in the church, a lot of Individuals were being killed, tortured, imprisoned, etc. And uh, this caused a little bit of a disruption for uh, the discipleship process. Because eventually what would happen, either uh, the disciplee or the discipler uh, would be imprisoned or killed. And so it tended to disrupt the, the process of, um, of discipleship. And, and because of these disruptions of discipleship, there ended up being some some issues as it went to teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 28, 19, and 20. It, there caused the disruption of teaching individuals to obey all that God had commanded. So some heretical views started popping up uh, that the church had to deal with. For example, uh, the deity of Christ. Uh, how is it that God uh, becomes flesh? How is it that flesh is is God? How how is that possible? And they had to struggle and work their way through understanding this. Uh, So different councils started uh, popping up, and they started pounding out these ideas and dealing with different heretical views, and they came up with different creeds, and these creeds helped to give a definition of the faith. Uh, What does it mean to, to be a believer, be a follower of Christ? And, of course, we can see these creeds, and, of course, later on they ended up developing catechisms, and these catechisms have been used to help believers grow in their walk with the Lord. Now, 
Uh, one of these aspects that was debated and dealt with and struggled with over the time of the church is this area of, between faith and works. Uh, how are we supposed to balance it? Or, or is there a balance at all? I mean, uh, some would say um, uh, only, only faith. And uh, they, they've had tattooed across their chest, uh, sola fides, you know, only faith. Um, is that how it should be? Well, we all know of uh, people in the church, uh, church ministers, who uh, work uh, Monday through Saturday. They have a certain life, and then Sunday they end up having uh, a different life. So uh, they live like the world Monday through Saturday, and then on Sunday they put on their uh, garb, and you know, and then they're all of a sudden uh, ready to administer the ordinary graces of the Lord, you know, uh, preaching of the word and leading. And we also know of uh, church members who uh, Monday through Saturday they have one type of life, and then come uh, Sunday they put on their nice clothes and everything, and they show up to church and they've got the hymnal and everything. And, and so it seems like if we look at that, how how is it possible? that a person is just justified by faith. And it brings the question, are we justified by faith alone? And Paul would seem, Paul would seem to indicate that that's the idea. Uh, but it, what it caused is, as you look at church history, some people then started struggling, well, what does it mean to be justified? How, how do we understand the word justified? And, and some say, well, uh, they started interpreting justified, and they say, well, yeah, justification is a process. A process by, by how one ends up becoming more and more just. So if I come to church Sunday morning, I'm a little bit more justified. If I come to church Sunday evening, that's a bunch of points. I mean, that could, uh, you know, you get a lot of points for Sunday evening. Uh, but, you know, you're driving out from church and uh, somebody cuts you off and you tell them some things and you do some hand gestures and you lose a little bit of the justification. And so you're back in that process uh, some have thought of that as a process. Uh, of course, Luther and uh, others, Martin Luther and others, started to say, you know, that's not really the meaning of the word justification. Uh, justification has more this idea of being declared righteous. It, it's not that the person hasn't done wrong. It's just a, an official declaration of the person is righteous. Uh, that's what it is. And so they started looking at this and analyzing it and so forth. So are we justified by faith alone? Well, some would say yes. Or are we justified by faith and works? Well, you would have a, a large section of the Catholic Church that would say yes. You would have some of the late reformers that say, how does a person know that they're saved? And their answer would be because they put their faith in Jesus Christ and because they have works. So, I mean, they <laughs> kind of separated, but then they got back to uh, what that... And it seems like common sense. I mean, it just seems common sense that how can you possibly say that a person just has to believe and they're, they're, they're saved? I mean, how is that possible that, that a person just believes? They, they just say a little prayer and that's it. They can keep on living however they want to do. They can do whatever they want to do. And that person is saved. It, it seems to go against, I guess, maybe common sense, that that just doesn't seem right. But then that brings into a problem. Because that almost assumes that um, uh, Christ died for my sins, and so I believe, and then, uh, you know, his, his death uh, paid a, a good 
portion, but I with my works kind of help out the rest. And that seems to imply that maybe his death on the cross is lacking a little bit. Well, how is that possible? Because when Christ died, he rose and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down beside him. He's accepted uh, his sacrifice. His wrath has been propitiated. Uh, and that was all done before it was even born. How could I possibly add to what Christ has done? So it puts us kind of in a difficult situation. Now, as we look at this and we start examining it, we, we want to look at this contextually. We want to look at, it, at the scriptures. We want to think a little bit about how does James fit in with what we've been looking at. We've been looking at Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and we've seen a bunch of future events that will be happening. Uh, all types of terms were thrown out there. And uh, maybe as I went through those two chapters, you didn't land exactly uh, where I was where saying. Maybe you had some different interpretations. What I tried to do as we looked at this is kind of like a, the illustration of, of, of the Pico, remember? When you uh, use your, your, your knife, if you use it correctly, you uh, make sure that you don't incorporate parts of your body into your Pico. Nobody wants part of your thumb or, or any blood into your... And, and the other thing it does is it ensures a consistent product. You don't have big pieces of onions, little pieces of onion. You don't, you don't have any of that. And what I've tried to do as we've gone through this is not impose my theology on the text, but just see what is there and pull that out, and, and also try to have it consistent so that it can be duplicated. Uh, it's always terrible when some guy preaches and uh, the Lord has illumined him with certain revelation and nobody else can see it in the text, you know, and you can't reproduce it in, in any which way. Uh, so we've tried to look at this and be able to reproduce it. And as we look at this, it, maybe you didn't land exactly where I landed, but you would have to agree that chapter 25 ends with an exhortation, an exhortation to live in anticipation of a judgment. That the sheep lived a certain way because they were sheep. The goats lived a certain way because they were goats. And you would have to, at some level, acknowledge that there's going to be a judgment for how people lived uh, here on the earth. Now, as we look at this, in chapter 25, we could put as really a, uh, an explanation of Matthew chapter 22, 37 through 39. Matthew chapter uh, 22, 37 through 39 says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Uh, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Matthew chapter 25 is really this idea of a person has a love for God and it shows itself through serving others. They were giving out water, they were giving out food, they were giving clothing, uh, they were visiting the sick, they were going to prisons, etc., etc., etc. They had a love for God and a love for one another. Now this idea of the double love command, love God, uh, love people, love your neighbor, is really uh, what some scholars think is, a, uh, is what is presented in the book of James. Now, I know we went through James uh, a while back through Sunday school, and uh, so I'm not going to go into all the introductory stuff that was already covered, but many think that James is an exposition of the double love command. 
to love the Lord and to love one another. And if you love the Lord and you love one another, you will grow in this wisdom that he, he explains here. And here's some, some things that we can see of this double love command. James chapter 1, verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him, to those who love him. Uh, it, this individual has this love for God, a love for God. James chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my brethren, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Again, this idea is being carried out through James that there is supposed to be a love for God. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 8 says, If, however, you are uh, fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So here now it incorporates, it adds in this other aspect. So there's the aspect of loving God, and now there's this aspect of loving uh, your neighbor. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So he's saying it's not enough just to say, I love God. That love for God should be demonstrated through actions towards one another. And then we can see in, in James chapter 4, 11 through 12, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or uh, judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, are you, uh, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But, you, but who are you? Uh, who judge your neighbor. So don't worry about your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Serve your neighbor. Help your neighbor out. Love God. It, he emphasizes this again. And of course, James brings out this future reality that Matthew ch chapter 25 brings out too, which is there's going to be a judgment. A judge will come and he's going to judge our actions. And, and James does this. So many, have, many scholars think that James is really just an exposition of the double love command. Love God and love one another. And based on that, we're going to look at this specifically. Christians must surrender all that they love to have a single-hearted love for God. That's what we're going to look at in this text. That uh, Christians must surrender all that they love to have a single-hearted love for God. Uh, many of us want to have a, a multifaceted heart and love for God. And we have him in a compartment. It might be a really big compartment. But we have other compartments where we love self and we love other things. And what this text is going to show us is that we have to have a single-hearted love for God. And that's uh, done through our works, through our actions. The first point that I would like to, us to see is that faith is perfected through works. Faith is perfected through works. Uh, as we... We're all good, right? We, we understand where I'm coming from, how this is going to explain Matthew 25. We didn't go too quickly. It, there, it seems like all of a sudden something happened in here. And we were like, but we're all good, right? Give a thumbs up. No thumbs Oh, yeah, there's a couple thumbs up. Great. So here we are in James chapter 2, verse 20. It says, but are you willing to recognize? Are you willing? Do you have this desire to know 
to arrive to a knowledge of something, to, to, to come to a conclusion of something. Uh, and he says, you foolish fellow. Now this word foolish is a, a person who is devoid of intellect, of moral, of spiritual value. He's, he's empty. It's not the fool of Proverbs who has information but decides not to use it. This is a person who it, he lacks intellect, lacks moral, lacks any spiritual value. He doesn't bring anything. Uh, this, this person is, is being called a, a foolish fellow. And this foolish fellow, that the question is being asked, that faith without works is useless. That word useless um, has this uh, idea of that it does not bear fruit. It's, it's unproductive. It, it, it's worthless. Uh, sometimes you can uh, think that uh, if you have a certain tree, you're anticipating certain fruit, and because of some reason or the other, the tree continues to grow, the tree continues to give leaves, the tree continues to throw its leaves on the ground, and you have to rake it up and everything, but it never produces fruit. It, 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 that's the sense of this word, is that it's unproductive. It doesn't give any good fruit for you. So he's saying faith without works, it, it doesn't produce anything. It has no value. Verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now there's another question. The first question he's asking, is there any value in a faith without works? Of course, we'd have to see contextually what it means. Verse 18 says, But someone may say, well, uh, may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, a person, we've seen this, where individuals can profess a certain knowledge. They've, they've been through all the Sunday school classes, they've been through all the Bible drill classes, and they can say, spit out all types of information. They, they've gone to Larry's Romans class, and they know all the book of Romans. But they show nothing of a change in their life. Nothing has changed at all. They act just like unsaved people. And what does that faith produce? It produces nothing. It has no value. They have a lot of answers to questions, but it has no value. Verse 21, he, he asks a second question. How was Abraham justified? Uh, justified is that word that has this meaning to be declared righteous. It, it doesn't mean necessarily that he is righteous, but it is a declaration by a judge that the person is righteous. They're not going to hold anything against him. Uh, I was in Winston-Salem going to a Bible college um, there, and... Um, my car needed to get uh, new plates on because I, was, I had become a North Carolina resident. And um, I, I was supposed to change it from the Florida tags to the North Carolina tags. I didn't know. I just thought, I'm in America, you know. <laughs> you can go anywhere. And uh, I got pulled over. This uh, police officer handed me a ticket for having an improper license plate. I'm not sure what the technical term was. I went and uh, appeared in uh, Forsyth County there uh, before this uh, like traffic thing. And um, if I had shown that I corrected the issue I w and asked for forgiveness, they would uh, take the $100 ticket away. 
Uh, I didn't have 25 cents at that time, so $100 was <laughs> a lot of money. And, um, so I, I did that. I got the new plate. I had proof of the new plate, and I went in and uh, said I was sorry that I was guilty, and he declared me uh, innocent. I, no longer did I have to pay the bill. That's that word. Had I had the wrong license plate on? Yes, I did. But he fixed the situation there. This is, this is what it's saying. Abraham is justified. He's declared. By works, though, it says, when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. How in the world are we supposed to understand that? I, I thought justification happened when we have faith. Uh, sola fides. But this seems like sola fides et opere, and works. We're adding something to it. Here he's justified by when he put his son on the altar. Now, as we look at this, uh, we have to start questioning, what does it mean? We'll go on to verse uh, 22. You say, uh, you see, which is a, uh, an invitation to look at the evidence. You see. Uh, look at this. Look at the argument I'm developing. That faith was working with. It's a very interesting word because it has this idea of coming alongside, uh, this working in cooperation with. It, it's um, not that it's going by itself, but it's working with his works. Faith was working with his works? Well, how does that, how does that happen? And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. It, it was made complete. It was made whole. His works did that? with his faith. So, I mean, we've been saying that maybe faith alone justifies a person, but it seems that James is advocating for something of uh, both faith and works to justify a person and make a person complete, make a person whole. Uh, verse um, 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. That's a, uh, it's an active verb. Active verbs, the subject is doing the action. So Abraham believed God. And then it says it was reckoned or it was counted to him. It, it, was, it was put to his account. It was reckoned. That verb is a passive. Passive verbs, the subject is being acted upon. So it's not that Abraham is reckoning himself. He's not counting himself. He's not declaring himself. But he's being declared to him as righteousness. And he was called, which is also a passive verb, so it's not that he is calling himself a friend of God. It's not that he's saying, yeah, me and him are buddies. But rather, he is being called the friend of God. So believe is the action verb that the subject is doing. Abraham, the other two verbs, are things that happen based on the fact that he believed. Not that he does them to himself. They're, they are done to him. And it says, uh, verse uh, 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Some of you have, you know, tattooed on your fingers or on your chest, faith alone, and now you're kind of wondering maybe if on your stomach you should put and works or, you know, how does this work? What, what, what should we do with this? Alone? Faith? It, it can't be alone? I thought that was the whole point of the Reformation, was to show that faith alone is what saves. Well, uh, we have to look at this and, and try to understand it. 
uh, Ronald Blue in the Bible Knowledge Commentary wrote, Paul said that Abraham was justified by faith, and James said that Abraham was justified by faith, evidenced by what he did. Evidenced by what he did. You were able to see what uh, Abraham believed because of what he did, how he practiced. Now, uh, we saw in the first point that faith is perfected through words. And what we've seen here is that Abraham, he uses Abraham as an example, and through the things that he did, we're able to point that he had a faith. The next point that we're going to look at is that your works will show where your loyalty lies. Your works will show where your loyalty lies. And to do this, uh, we'll um, have to go to Genesis chapter 22. Now let's go over to Genesis chapter 22. We don't have time to read all of verses um, 1 through 14. I would encourage you to read those because we have to ask ourselves the question. Verse 21 asked, uh, asked the question that Abraham was justified when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Chapter 22 is when that happened. And so we have to say, was he actually justified when he did that? Uh, or maybe James is just misinterpreting scripture. Maybe he's hoping that you don't have Genesis in front of you, and so you can't reference it back, and he's kind of help, hoping that uh, we're just ignorant. Well, lo and behold, we have the whole Bible, so we have to now go and see, see if Abraham was actually justified when he offered up his son. Uh, when we look at this, we see in verse 21, it says, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 22, now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham, tested him. Uh, it's a, in, in narrative, it's a, a, a narrative obtrusion to include this part in. It, it breaks the flow and it, uh, it gives information that's necessary for interpreting the rest of the narrative. What, what happens after here? Uh, how should we understand this? And we're supposed to understand this thing as not as God being like the gods of Canaan that accepted human sacrifice, but rather uh, God who wants to see the character of Abraham. He wants to test them uh, to see how, he, how he's going to behave and so forth. So uh, here's the test, verse, verse 2. He, says, uh, he said, take your son... Your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I will tell you. So there are some sacrifices that you can do that are a portion, but not a burnt offering. Burnt offering is the whole thing is put there. So it's not like he could have just cut off a lock of his hair, throw it on there, and said, I, I offered him. That's not going to work for a burnt offering. He's got to be put there and consumed totally by fire. What does this mean? How are we supposed to understand this? This is, as it says, his son, his only son, the son that he loves, to offer him up as a burnt offering. Furthermore, the other thing that complicates this a little bit is that um, Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise that God had given Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. He said, out of Abraham would come a, a nation. 
if you kill the one child, you're not going to have a nation. I mean, it's, it's a pretty humble start, you know, one kid. Uh, but, but still, you, it kind of makes it so that the promise can't go forward, it almost seems like. And, and if you, you think about that, maybe theologically, Abraham could have started arguing with God and said, no, 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 you promised a son. You can't go back on your promises. Therefore, I can't obey what you're saying. Not only is he the fulfillment of the promise of God, but he's the blessing of God. God had blessed Abraham with a son. In, af- in asking him and telling him to sacrifice the blessing, it shows where the li- loyalty will lie. Is it for God or is it for the blessings that God gives? Many of us love the blessings that God gives more than we love God. And if God stops giving blessings, then we stop loving God. It puts into question about this loyalty. Where will his loyalties lie? Well, verse 3 tells us, So Abraham rose early. He rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. Abraham believed. And not only did he believe, but he rose early for the purpose of obeying. Now, now this is pretty interesting because in other times, Abraham questioned God. You remember uh, Genesis 18? Uh, The Lord comes with two angels and Abraham sees them. He invites them to eat. He, He prepares food for them. They're getting ready to leave to go wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, the Lord says, shouldn't I tell Abraham what I'm about to go do? So he turns aside and goes to Abraham and tells him, uh, yeah, so um, I'm about to go wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, (laughs) Abraham remembers, right? Is that, I think that's where Lot lives. Goes and pulls out his phone, looks up the address. Ah, yes, it is in Sodom. And so what does he start to doing? He automatically accepts God's judgment upon them and says, thy will be done, right? No. He says, well, uh, if there are 50, we see this in uh, Genesis 18, 22 through 33. Uh, what, what if there's 50 righteous people? You're going to destroy 50 righteous people? And God says, if there's 50 righteous there, I'll spare it. Abraham started calculating a little bit. Started thinking about Lot's desire to witness and share the gospel, his small groups, Bible study, and he's like, what if there's 45? Would you destroy for 45? God said, hey, there's 45 there. I won't destroy it. Abraham keeps on arguing with God and gets all the way down to 10. God says, if there are 10 righteous, I'll spare the city. He shows up, there's not even 10 righteous. What we see there in Abraham is that He's not willing to accept the will of God. He doesn't say, thy will be done. You're you're the perfect judge. No, he starts to argue with with, with God. Or or we can think about in in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. God says, go to this land. I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And then a famine comes in. Remember? And what does he do when that famine comes in? 
he remembers the promise that God had given him, and he stayed put, right? No. He took off to Egypt. He thought he'd be better off down in Egypt than staying where God had commanded him. This time, Genesis chapter 22, he does neither of the things he's done in the past. He's grown in his walk with the Lord. Does he understand it? I doubt it. What did he tell his wife? Probably not the truth. Oh, uh, yeah, we'll be back, you know. I mean, how do you explain that? I'm about to kill our son. Yes, uh, I'll see you. Please have the biscuits ready. I like them with gravy, you know. But what do you say? We're going to go worship the Lord together. He obeys, and he obeys immediately. Now, as we look at this obedience that he does, what was the point of this? Well, verse 12 says, um, when we look at uh, verse 12, it says, he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do, not, and do nothing to him. For uh, now I know that you fear God. The now I know. The know of an experiential knowledge. God already had knowledge of what would happen. But God can also experience things as they happen. It's a poor illustration, but um, I know Kara cooks good food. But when the food is there and I'm eating it, I'm experiencing the good food, right? I have a knowledge, but I get to experience it. And as he obeys, God experiences uh, the obedience of Abraham. Now we might start to think a little bit and say, well, isn't that kind of selfish of God? I mean, just for a test? Think about the anxiety that Abraham had to go through. Three days of traveling and, and, and thinking about how to hide this from uh, Isaac. Isaac asked him, hey, where's the lamb? He said, God will provide. What does that mean, you know? Uh, can you imagine the anxiety he's going through? Just for a test, it seems so selfish on God's part. Like, couldn't he have been a nicer God? And maybe we're going through situations right now, and, and, and we're thinking, you know, that wasn't very fair what God did to me. I, I don't like what has happened to me. We can look at this. What was the point of all that? Well, the point is found really in verse 14. Says Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. See, there was something about Abraham that he lacked in his biblical knowledge. He had a lot of information about God, he had spoken to God, but it was through putting his faith into works that his knowledge, theological knowledge, closed a little bit of the gaps. Let's go back to James chapter 2, very briefly. James chapter 2, verse 22, it says, You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. When Abraham obeyed and did the works, what he believed ended up becoming perfected. He had knowledge, but now he put it into practice. Many of us have an incomplete faith because we have no works. 
we're not willing to trust God and actually obey what he says. So we have huge gaps in our knowledge of God because we're not willing to put it into practice. We're not willing to put our faith into action and do things. It takes the stepping out in faith, what we believe in, in doing that. What we saw is that Christians must surrender all that they love to have a single-hearted love for God. Can you imagine Abraham doing that? He did it and showed he had a loyalty to God above the blessings that God provided. Now, do you have a single-hearted love for God? Maybe you don't, but you believe, you know, uh, that, that you're a good person. Maybe you've counted yourself as righteous. Maybe you've called yourself a friend of God, but you've never believed. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Today can be the day of salvation. Today you can believe what Jesus Christ did on the cross, paid the debt of sin that you had. And then God will declare you righteous and count you as a friend. Others of you, you do have a single heart love for God. And I say, praise the Lord. You, you love God and you love others. You serve. You, what you know about God reflects in the actions and it shows a loyalty to God. And, and you encourage others to do that. And that praise the Lord for that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, Thank you for this example that was given. We know that there's going to be a day that